Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Matt Martens, with a Christian perspective of our criminal justice system. The laws should reflect both in their their both in their terms and in their application God's justice. And what I'm saying is, I agree with that, and I'm saying it should, that applies just as much to how God defines justice when it comes to the criminal law. And so we should be just as committed to making sure that the law reflects God's justice when it comes to the criminal law as we should when it comes to abortion. Matt Martens, next. now, part two of our discussion with attorney Matt Martens about his new book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Matt, as we get started today, first, tell us about your background. Yeah, I've been, as I say, a Christian as long as I can remember. Uh, and, you know, if you asked me to identify a time when I believed I could at the age of five, I grew up in a Christian home, but mm. I really don't remember a time where I didn't believe. Uh, I was as I said, fortunate to uh, blessed to to grow up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor for 36 years um, at a Baptist church in New Jersey, and I went to law school right after college. And it's somewhere along the line decided I wanted to do criminal work um, relatively early on, and so started as a criminal lawyer. After I finished clerking, I, I clerked for the first few years after law school, including at the U.S. Supreme Court for Chief Justice Rehnquist, and then I started practicing criminal law uh, on the defense side and defended a number of criminal cases at trial um, early in my career, which was a a formative experience. I I was working with a much more senior and experienced criminal lawyer, and so I just learned a lot from that. And then when President Bush won the election in 2000, um, I went with the law partner who I was working with, um, who took a senior position in the Justice Department. I went with him and and uh, was his chief of staff under Attorney General Ashcroft. And then I was a line prosecutor for um, more than seven years, nearly eight years. So I prosecuted everything you can imagine from uh, capital murder cases uh, to bank fraud, to securities fraud, to bank robbery, uh, to child sex abuse material, to gun charges, to drug trafficking. So uh, on both sides of the, the V, so to speak, I've probably handled every type of case you can imagine. Okay, Matt, and if you would uh, talk us through the stages of a typical real-life prosecution. Yes, yeah, sure. So after someone's arrest, typically, arrested, typically the first thing that happens is they're brought before some type of judicial officer to have bail set. Uh, this creates its own issues. We should probably have a discussion about the problem around bail and oh. the rhetoric and the um, and the demagoguing around bail. But someone is typically brought before some type of judicial officer and bail is set. Bail could be set in a relatively modest amount for a small offense, but that person may not have the ability to pay. Uh, it could be set in a very high amount or denied altogether in a very serious charge, uh, murder or terrorism. Um, the bail determination determines whether someone will be out prior to trial or will be held prior to trial. 
Um, in some states, there'll actually be a grand jury indictment. In other states, there's different type of, of charging. But, you know, we say someone's indicted, meaning a formal charge is brought. Um, and then a trial date will be set. They'll be appointed a lawyer if they can't afford one. The, the lawyer can file motions to perhaps suppress evidence or prevent certain witnesses or allow for other witnesses to come. Trial will be held. A jury will be picked uh, from citizens in that locality. Uh, some jurors will be excused for cause. Maybe they know a wit know one of the witnesses or they know a victim or they know the prosecutor, defense lawyer, or they know the defendant. So those are called four cause challenges. Mm. Um, so jurors could be removed for cause uh, because of some connection to the case. And then the prosecutor and the defense have some number of what are called peremptory challenges, meaning they can remove a juror just because maybe the person came in wearing an ACLU t-shirt or came in wearing a t-shirt of uh, the Police Benevolence Association. And so one side or the other thinks that might not be a good juror for me, or they saw their bumper sticker, or they were kind of grumpy or whatever. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have a reason. You can just get rid of yeah. the jurors uh, because they don't, they, they're not somebody you feel comfortable with. So you get a certain number of those. Jury then is sworn. Um, and the judge presides over the trial. The judge decides what evidence comes in or doesn't come in. Prosecution will call their witnesses first. We'll ask them questions on what's called direct examination. Defense lawyer can then ask questions on cross-examination. Defense lawyer or prosecutor can then usually ask some follow-up questions. Go to your next witness. Um, when the prosecution finishes their witness, the prosecution will say the government rests. And then the defense, if, if he or she wants to, can call witnesses. The defendant can decide whether he or she wants to testify. There's a right to remain silent, a right not to testify. Um, if the defense offers witnesses, the prosecution could offer some rebuttal witnesses, perhaps to address a point that a defense witness made. And then the case will go to closing arguments, where the, first the prosecutor usually, then the defense lawyer, and then the prosecutor again will offer closing arguments to the jury. The jury will deliberate, return a verdict, and then usually in most states, the judge will sentence, though in some states, the jury will actually return the sentence. Um, and then if the defendant's convicted and sentenced to a time of incarceration, the, the sheriff's officer or the marshal will take them into custody at the end of the trial and they'll begin serving their sentence. So that's high level overview of what a criminal prosecution looks like. Mm. Well, if, from your experiences, can, can you give an example or two of people that you have represented? Well, as a, say as a defense lawyer, for example, and maybe how some of these issues of uh, injustice have you've seen them motivating you to to pursue uh, a, reforming the criminal justice system, at least in some way. Well, I can't talk about my clients because of attorney-client confidentiality. Mm. So um, what I talk about in the book really is not just trying to find isolated cases, though I do talk about examples. I want to look at the big picture data. Uh, I want to I try to analyze, is the system functioning correctly? Not can I find a case here or there where maybe something went, wrong, mm -hmm. went wrong. So one of just one example uh, along those lines as I mentioned, uh, there's this this failure by police and prosecutors too often to hand over evidence of innocence. So 
also in 1963, the same year that the Supreme Court recognized the right to counsel, they recognized a right to evidence that the police or prosecutors might collect that is evidence of the defendant's innocence. In other words, when they go out and do the investigation, they can't just say, well, here's all the evidence of guilt and we'll just stick all the evidence of innocence in a drawer and we'll just go into trial with the evidence of guilt. They have to hand over the evidence of innocence to the defense counsel who can then just decide how are how he or she wants to use it. Mm -hmm. Because again, if your goal is accuracy and your goal is to have a process that surfaces and tests the relevant evidence, which is what we as Christians should want, then then I think what you see um, is that it follows from that, that if the government has evidence of innocence, they should hand it over to the defense so, so the jury can, it can be surfaced for the jury and tested. But it wasn't until 1963 that the Supreme Court said that the Constitution required that. So you might say, well, hey, I'm glad that that got sorted out in 1963. Um, but but in 2013, uh, 50 years later, a federal court of appeals judge appointed by President Reagan wrote in an opinion that there is a epidemic of violations of that principle occurring in this country. <laughs> and again, you see this at the high level data I talked about, about the number of exonerations that involve police or prosecutorial misconduct, it's almost always this failure to turn over evidence of innocence. <laughs> and so I, I think that the there has been in recent years uh, a much greater recognition that this is occurring, that this violation is occurring in far too many criminal cases. Some of it intentional, I think probably much more of it born of the reality that not only are public defenders overworked, but there are also it's also true that prosecutors are overworked. That's part of what's driving the plea bargaining is that they have more cases than they can handle. And if they've got more cases than they can handle, then they may not have devoted the time necessary to go and gather up the evidence of innocence and make sure that that's disclosed as well or carefully examine that. And so uh, some of it born of malice, but some of it probably born of just being overworked. But nonetheless, uh, it this misconduct occurring and it resulting in far too many wrongful convictions. Mm. So that's just an example. Of- just one example of something that I think the uh, – um, what the data bears out and what people who are familiar with a system like that federal judge are drawing, the conclusions they're drawing based on their having sort of the eagle eye view of the system as a whole. Well, your book is Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal. And you make a, a an interesting statement. You make many interesting statements in it. But one is that you believe that to live in this country is to participate in our criminal justice system. And I can hear people saying, well, I, I, I don't think I've ever had any interaction with the criminal justice system. But could, could you explain that, and particularly for the Christian listener? Well, what's unique about living in a democratic republic like the United States or a constitutional republic is that by getting to vote, you are deciding who is going to act on your behalf to carry out criminal justice. They are acting as your agents. Uh, you are deciding to use Romans 13 language, who to hand the sword to, to carry out justice. And and because we empower those people, I think we're responsible um, to, to rein them in when they act inappropriately. We can't just empower them and then 
turn away and say, well, I hope it all works out. We've, we've given them power that creates in us a responsibility to hold them accountable uh, by, by being aware of how they're exercising that power and voting accordingly when the next election comes along. So considering their character when we give them the power and considering their performance when uh, we reevaluate that four years later. And so in that sense, in America, we have the unique ability to participate in the justice process in a way that very few people around the world and across the course of history have had the ability to do. You know, in a monarchy, there's a criminal justice system, but the average citizen doesn't have much to say about how it gets uh, implemented. But in a democratic republic like the United States, we do. And that creates a responsibility on our part that we have a stewardship. We have an ability, a role to play in enacting God's justice. And we have an obligation as a result to make sure that the role we are playing is being played in accord with God's justice. So this is essentially what you were just saying, I think, but to the issue of voting, since it is the legislative bodies like the House of Representatives that makes the laws, it all the more important who you vote for. And so you're, you're saying we need to do a little bit of homework. Well, I'm much less worried about the legislature because they have a, a relatively limited role to play in the sense that it's not like we're modifying the, the murder statute every every couple of weeks, you know, or every few years. I'm much more worried about your district attorney. What's really interesting is that that's one of the few elections where it's a one issue election. Mm. Right. When you're voting for your district attorney, you don't need to know what he or she thinks about uh, roads or education or foreign affairs. All you need to know is what do they think about criminal justice? And so it's a very direct way to hold government accountable on a issue that is directly related to what we believe as Christians, what we believe is justice. About, about justice and what justice is. And so uh, the district attorney election in particular provides a, a real opportunity for us to hold government accountable for how it is executing justice on our behalf. And another issue doesn't affect too many of us. I mean, I, I, I've never sat on a jury, but that's another way that we participate in the criminal justice system if we have that opportunity. Absolutely unique among, again, the people of the, the history of the world. And one thing I always I try to point out is that when you look at those wrongful convictions, yes, about a quarter of them happen through guilty pleas. That's actually really surprising. Um, but three quarters of them happen to trial. And in the United States, a criminal jury verdict has to be unanimous. So if you, just a single juror, just any one of your listeners on a jury could stop a wrongful conviction single-handedly uh, by refusing to vote based on shoddy evidence, uh, refusing to vote for a, gu a guilty verdict. And so it's really a unique opportunity to carry out God's justice, whether that's for a victim who needs to hear the community say this was wrong, or for a defendant who's been wrongly accused to hear um, to hear that exoneration, to receive that exoneration, to receive that not guilty verdict. Either way, this is an opportunity to carry out God's justice. And I say to Christians, like, if you don't do it, 
believing what you believe scripture teaches about justice, then someone else is going to do it, presumably someone who doesn't share your view of God's justice. And so, don't run away from that opportunity. View it as a stewardship again, unique opportunity among all people in the history of the world to render justice as God has defined justice. Well, and to raise uh, an issue that you you do in your book, and it's uh, the phrase social justice has become so controversial in recent times, and yet you said if it's rightly understood, at least from a biblical framework, it's it's a biblical concept. Certainly. If, if by social justice you mean what I mean, which is organizing society in a biblically just way, in a way that reflects God's justice, uh, that, that is definitely a, a Christian concept. You see this in Isaiah 10 where, you, where the Bible says, mentioned this before, woe to those who issue unjust decrees. It's recognizing that the decrees, the laws that the government enacts can be unjust or they can be just. And one of the aspects that the way, uh, one of the ways in which government acts justly or unjustly is through criminal justice. And so uh, this is, a, a, this idea of Organizing and operating society in a just way, as Scripture defines justice, is very much a biblical concept. It's something that, as Christians, we should be committed to. And, and you, I think you apply it to all, all kinds of issues that perhaps we don't think of, abortion and the unborn, for example. Sure. But we do think of those, right? I mean, we recognize that when it comes to issues like abortion, rightly so, that the that the laws should reflect both in their their in both in their terms and in their application God's justice. And what I'm saying is, I agree with that, and I'm saying it should, that applies just as much to how God defines justice when it comes to the criminal law. And so we should be just as committed to making sure that the law reflects God's justice when it comes to the criminal law, as we should when it comes to abortion. And in this whole context, you say uh, in your book that this is all part of our sanctification. In fact, I think you say this is a major thrust of the book. Yeah. I mean, if you understand that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ has not only declared us just, but is making us into just people— you know, what, Ephes- what Ephesians 2, 8, 9, unto good works, right? We're saved unto, for the purpose of good works. Uh, Peter talks about this in First Peter 1. He says that we were elect before the foreknowledge of time for obedience, that God has saved us not just to declare us just and to let us go on living like we want. He's declared us just and then is making us, through the work of the Holy Spirit, just people. And that means just not only that in my one-on-one interactions with you, but it means just in how I think about how our society should be organized, that that growing as a Christian means that I think about the way in which living justly impacts all aspects of my life, my one-on-one interactions and my social interactions with the society at large. Uh, and not to uh, in any way negate what you've been saying or your the content of your book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal, and I think you bring this subject up, but in conversations like this, People often will say something like, well, our criminal justice system has its flaws, but it's the best we have, or it's the best that, that has ever existed in the history of the world. And, and that may well be true, but that's not the correct standard. Um, I'm, I'm glad if it's the best system that ever was, but the standard 
that I think Scripture calls me to is, is it the best we can do? In other words, if I, if I have 10 talents and I go bury them in the ground and I save them, that's not the standard that, that Scripture calls me to. The Scripture says that if I have 10 talents, I have an obligation to do something with those 10 talents. And we, unique among the people of the world over the course of history, have particular resources, both scientific and financial, um, available to us. We have learning about how for example, people falsely confessed to crimes or how people could, witnesses could be subject to suggestion um, in certain ways. We have learning and scientific and soci- sociological and financial resources available to us that other people in the history of the world haven't had. And the question isn't, well, are we doing better than people did in 18th century America? The question is, are we doing all we could reasonably do? with the resources we have available. I really I really view this as a stewardship. I mean, there's a reason I think Paul refers to government authorities as ministers of God. That's what he calls them. He uses the word deacons, the same word that we use elsewhere, deacons, that the government authorities are ministers of God. And I think we have an obligation to make sure our ministers are doing all they could reasonably do in this particular moment in time, in this particular place to achieve justice. Not just are we doing better than someone else, are we doing all we could do with the stewardship we've been given? Well, obviously, this conversation is being heard in a public forum, not just to attorneys or people in the legal profession. What what can the average person, what would you like? We, we've talked about voting. We've talked about somehow we end up on a jury. But is there anything else you would like to see the average believer do to help to reform the criminal justice system? I had an 11-year-old boy come up to me at church a couple weeks ago and say, what can I do? And, I, and he's been reading my book, which was amazing to <laughs> me that I had an 11-year-old 11, 11 boy reading it. Yeah. So if you think it's not accessible, it really is accessible. And I said this to him. I said, you're going to be a voter in seven years. And I said, start talking to your friends about what you're learning in this. Talk to them about how we should think about justice as Christians and start um, talking to them about how the system actually operates. If people are just more knowledgeable and vote accordingly – I think we could we could make significant changes. And then I'd say the second thing is don't shirk jury service. View it as a as a opportunity to in a very direct way live out what the Bible says about about doing justly. And so I think just being knowledgeable, voting as a knowledgeable person and taking the opportunity to serve on a jury seriously. Um, and do that in light of what Scripture says about justice and about what you now can learn about how the system operates. Um, I think that that, if I achieve that, I've achieved what I'm trying to achieve. And and I haven't heard you say this, but I'm wondering if maybe a little bit implicit in what you're talking about, you talked about the, the, the big dearth of defense attorneys uh, in the in the criminal justice system. I mean, would, would part of the solution be for like-minded people to, if, I mean, obviously, if God is calling them, but to come into yeah. the, the legal profession? I, I, I would say this. It is honorable to be a prosecutor. It is an honorable calling to be a defense lawyer. And whichever someone chooses to be, I would say do it according to God's justice. Um, so if you have listeners out there who are thinking about going to law school or think or maybe in law school and thinking about what they want to do afterwards, I'd say I don't view one as more honorable than the other, a defense lawyer or a prosecutor. I think they both play an important role 
in surfacing and testing the relevant evidence. And you can do that honorably unto the Lord, and you can do that dishonorably. And so I would encourage people, if that's an area of law they're interested in, to to do it and do it with all your heart and do it honorably unto the Lord. And just very, very briefly, I think we may have touched on this, but I'm not sure. You bring it up in your book. What is the relationship of the gospel to criminal justice? I think it really goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, which is that that salvation is not merely fire insurance. Salvation is not merely otherworldly. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus went about preaching. Um, it is here. It is not all here. Uh, it is not entirely here. But God's kingdom is breaking through even now, and it breaks through when we as redeemed people live like him, that when we image him. And the salvation that's offered in Jesus Christ, again, is not only a forgiveness of sins and a declaration of pardon, though it is that, and thank God for that. The salvation that Christ offers is also a transformation, a renewing of the mind. Um, It is being living sacrifices, so many different words used for it in Scripture. But it's the idea that God is remaking us even now into the image of His Son. Um, and that and that that is the salvation we get that again we lost that in the fall when we rebelled against God and it's restored through the second Adam Jesus Christ that we can live again um, in the just way with our fellow man that God made us to uh, created us to live and so this I think this idea of being committed to justice both in our individual and our social interactions with others is one of the great gifts of the gospel Uh, John Calvin referred to the double grace of salvation as being justification, we're declared just, and sanctification, we are made just. Uh, God is day by day through his word um, and through prayer and through the the normal means of grace making us into people um, that look more and more more like his son. We will not get all all the way uh, in this side of eternity, and we, we live in hope that one day we will be glorified. And speaking of hope, your your ultimate hope for reforming criminal justice, a Christian proposal? Is that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We strive for justice now, and we hope for, we trust in justice in the end, that God in the end will set all wrongs right. He will restore the years that the locusts have eaten for those people who are wrongly convicted. Um, and that is the promise that we as con- Christians confess around the world and across the centuries. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to today's guest, attorney Matt Martens, author of the new book, Reforming Criminal Justice, A Christian Proposal. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Mac Stiles on lies people believe in our culture and how Jesus is relevant to them. Jesus was a great moral teacher, or Jesus was, a, you know, an exemplary person, or he set a great example by, by being sacrificial. But to say he's only those things curses Christ with faint praise. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's divine. He's the divine Son of God. That's tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>